This is your award-winning BCFM on 93.2, 24 hours a day. Good morning and welcome to One Love, One Planet, the award-winning environmental radio show here on BCFM, where we talk all things environmental in Bristol, the UK and the rest of the world. My name is Shona Jemfrey. I'm presenting the programme for several months while the amazing Penny Scythegate has a very well-deserved rest and recharges her batteries. We are going to be looking at some news stories related to the environment, both in Bristol and further afield. We're going to play some tunes. And today we have an interview for you that I'm particularly excited about. It's Dr. Rosa Vasquez Espinoza, a Peruvian scientist and National Geographic explorer, who's going to be telling us all about her research and adventures in the Amazon, as well as what it means to be a science communicator and a woman in the science field. So welcome to One Love, One Planet. Thank you for joining us. Settle in for what is sure to be an interesting hour. We will crack straight on with our news roundup because we have a lot to get through today. So the first headline is one from uh, Al Jazeera and it is Brazil's President Lula unveils plans to end deforestation by 2030. The administration of Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva has announced its plan to eliminate deforestation by 2030 as part of an international pledge to protect the environment. So obviously Brazil contains the Amazon rainforest, one of the lungs of planet Earth as it's described. Lula and his environment minister Marina Silva unveiled this action plan for the prevention and control of deforestation in the Amazon. Um, That was yesterday they unveiled it, touting it as the latest step in their aggressive platform to combat climate change. The plan stipulates increased use of satellite imagery to identify illegal logging, ranching and mining operations. Government databases containing financial intelligence will also be deployed to track the flow of money from unsanctioned operations in the Amazon rainforest. Lula announced it on Twitter with a comment that rich countries also need to do their part. They were the ones who over the centuries devastated forests the most. The announcement lays the groundwork for Brazil to follow through with a 2021 agreement forged at the COP26 climate talks in Glasgow, Scotland, to halt deforestation by 2030. An estimated 145 countries joined in the Glasgow Declaration, which would cover, if it's followed, would cover approximately 85% of the world's forests and woodlands. Among them, 12 governments have pledged $12 billion to protect and restore forest ecosystems with funds set aside for indigenous populations. So this sounds very promising. Fingers crossed. Um, yeah, we will we will see how that goes. Obviously, Brazil was, uh, previous president was Bolsonaro, who uh, a very right-wing president and very bad for the environment. So fingers crossed that this uh, can continue, but also, yeah, rich countries and the global north need to do their part to make up for what has happened. Uh, another uh, another uh, headline in Al Jazeera, will fossil fuel phase out make it onto the UN's climate agenda? This seems like an obvious question, but the United Nations climate chief has said that while the rapid end of using fossil fuels urgently needed, this topic might not even reach crucial COP28 negotiations. COP28 obviously happening later this year. Uh, the agenda decision is up to the president of negotiations, which this year is Sultan Al-Jaber, head of the state-owned Abu Dhabi National, National Oil Company. And the decision by the host nation, UAE, to make him the head of the climate conference has drawn fierce opposition from lawmakers across the world, and UAE officials say they want game-changing results in the climate talks and, and say that he also runs a large renewable energy company. But there is, yeah, so there's a risk that 
uh, fossil fuel phase like might not even make it onto the climate agenda because a uh, uh, the head of the national oil company in the UAE is going to be the president of the negotiations, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, last year at Climate Talks, a proposal by India to phase out all fossil fuels, supported by the US and many European nations, it never even got on the agenda. And that was decided by the COP president last year, who last year was the foreign minister of Egypt, a national natural gas exporting nation. So... A lot of conflicts of interest going on, it seems, in the COP negotiations. Um, Some more local news, a BBC headline, West of England Metro Mayor confirms £15 million Bristol underground study. The West of England Metro Mayor, Dan Norris, has confirmed that £15 million will be spent on a study exploring the costs of a mass transport network for Bristol. This obviously, the underground, Bristol underground, a famous controversial idea it's been going around for years Dan Norris said that the spending money was sensible despite admitting that the multi-billion pound project was unlikely to be built so even though he thinks it's unlikely for this project to be built he is feels that we should still uh, do the study exploring the costs and benefits of it even though it cost 15 million pounds to do this study the 15 million pound study was first announced by Marvin Rees last year it will explore the costs and benefits of building a light rail metro network for the city uh, but Mr Norris, when he was speaking to John Darville last week, said that the West of England Combined Authority was still going to spend £15 million on the study. He added the underground was very unlikely to be ever be built due to its high costs. Estimates for the total cost of an underground network have varied from £4 billion to £18 billion, which is obviously quite a wide range. Um, he said that it was the right thing to do to still go ahead and do the study on the costs and benefits of having... Uh, underground. So a lot going on there. A lot of uh, Leah. Let us know what you think. If you have thoughts on that, you can message us on WhatsApp of zero seven five zero one eight two zero zero seven five. Message us at BCFM, and uh, yeah, we'll play some more music, and then we will get straight into our interview for today. It's a really good one, so hold tight. This is BCFM. And so today we have a very special interview with a Peruvian indigenous PhD scientist and National Geographic explorer, Dr. Rosa Vasquez Espinosa, um, who's recently moved to the UK to continue work in science communication and exploration. Her career has spanned over a decade of groundbreaking research on topics ranging from Amazonian stingless bees to the microbial ecology of the extreme boiling river in the Peruvian Amazon. Uh, Dr. Rosa, it's brilliant to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. Hi, how is it going? Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, I mean, this is your your career. It sounds incredible. Um, but yeah, tell t- just tell us a bit about yourself. Tell us a bit about, I guess, you know, what, you know, wh- where you grew up, how you, and how maybe you got into this particular career because it's very unique and you know, bit bit of an adventure. Oh, thank you. You're very kind. I appreciate it. Um, so it, it's been a whirlwind, really. I was born and and raised in Peru. And so I went to, to school in the capital, which is uh, called Lima. But my family comes from different parts of the country, including the Andes, the mountains, so small towns in the high Andes of Peru, as well as from the Amazon jungle. And so although I went uh, to school primarily in Lima, I would spend extended times in the summer help, helping collect 
like harvest of potatoes in the mountains or quite literally like trekking the Amazon jungle and playing with monkeys or um, other animals that would be around there. And I just saw that as normal growing up over there. Um, and when I was a little kid, I've just always been fascinated uh, with nature through not just my family, but specifically uh, my grandmother, who was one of the elderly in her community in the mountains that learned how to use medicinal plants to heal and to treat different conditions. And when they moved to the city, she brought all that knowledge with her and built what we like to call a small natural pharmacy in our backyard, where I would spend literally every afternoon with her after school while my parents were still working. Um, and in and amongst all of those experiences and in school and things I'll be reading, I was just fascinated with anything that was related to nature. And at first, that kind of came through the idea of wanting to be an astronaut for the longest time <laughs> as a kid. I think we all uh, want to be then, an astronaut know, at some it, point, yeah. <laughs> I think so too, right? And I took it so seriously. I was reading all the books, literally trying to like choose the classes I was taking in high school, like towards that. And, and then eventually just kind of reconnected with that passion for nature at, at a smaller level, which is kind of looking at the what I like to call the micro worlds around us. So going from this kind of like looking at the stars and all these distant worlds that could be in our planet, uh, in our galaxy, and then really realizing that although there's still so much for us to discover there, there's, in my opinion, just as much left to discover within our own planet. And I was around 15 or 16 when I took a trip back to the Amazon jungle with the high school. Uh, but this time it was not a family trip. It was more of a... Um, biology and geology type of driven course where we had to get dirty with our hands with the idea of like an experiment in mind. And that was the first time I was like re-experiencing the space with that mentality. And that to me was kind of like a pivotal moment because I think that's when I decided that, okay, you know what, I, I will study science and I will go deep into it. And I want to be able to take all of that and come back home and be able to study what we have. And that has taken many different shapes. At first, um, looking at microbes, so like these teeny tiny microscopic or, uh, worlds that are within our jungles on one side, um, studying the extreme microbes that live in a place that is known as the Bolin River in the, in the Peruvian Amazon. I don't know if you've ever heard no. about it. Tell, tell us a bit about that. I've never heard of it. So it went, the news went around a little bit. So I wasn't sure how, you know, to how many countries it, it hit. Um, but basically there is a, a thermal spring, but it's not just a small spring, but rather quite one of the largest thermal rivers in the world, at least as to what we know right now. And the leaves in the middle of the luscious Amazon jungle, usually hot springs or thermal rivers are found a bit more isolated or in uh, conditions that don't really welcome larger forms of life, such as big trees and exotic plants or many more animals around. Like if we look, for example, at Yellowstone National Park in the United States, those boiling waters also tend to be acidic. And so really the life that has learned to grow around it is quite specialized and, and endemic, so very specific to that area. Um, but what is so fascinating about the Bolin River in the Amazon is that Literally, it's as if you are looking at the whole jungle and all its voluptuous and, you know, insane exotic life. And then all of a sudden, you just literally put this boiling river in the center that has temperatures 
almost <laughs> up to 200 Fahrenheit, which is above 99 Celsius, which really are extreme. Like nothing in theory, uh, at least that we can see with our with our naked eyes, can survive there. No mammals can survive there. You immediately get third degree burns within seconds. And small animals that unfortunately fall into the river, which we've seen happen, boil from inside out. So it's super dramatic, as dramatic as you can think of it. And yet, despite of not just the boiling, the strong water currents and the strong hot vapor that comes out of it, which can actually be um, quite dangerous as well and can burn, uh, life has just thrived around it. You find still big trees, giant flowers, um, different animals that have just learned to cohabit in such a beautiful way. And for the longest time, nobody ever thought that there could be anything living in those waters until with a team of researchers and partially funded by National Geographic and with the University of Michigan, we decided to try to answer that question. And so we undertook a giant expedition that was part of my PhD studies um, right before COVID to be able to collect samples and try to find, you know, what could actually be living there. And ultimately is that microbes have the ability to live in the most extreme conditions that we could ever imagine, including space or, um, you know, in acidic conditions. But in this specific case, in these hot, hot temperatures, they've evolved to be able to, to thrive there. And not only that, but be able to still produce molecules that could be useful for humanity, whether it's for bioremediation um, or medicine. And what I love to add to that story is that the Boiling River, as many things and the natural forms that we find in the Amazon, are not just of, you know, interest for our human curiosity or like the scientific mind, but really hold so much cultural value to the people. And so I have really focus and, and try to make an effort that all the work that I undertake really invite and welcome and embrace the cultural aspect and the ethno-knowledge that Amazonian people uh, bring to everything they do and into their daily lives. Yeah, and I mean, obviously you have the background of sort of learning from your grandmother who had all this sort of um, knowledge that she'd gathered and passed on. Because I was just looking it up and yeah, the Boiling River is also, it's a, a, a sacred spiritual place for some people, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, Peruvians in general, whether they grew up in the Amazon or in the Andes, there's a, such a strong uh cultural connection to nature. And I think that really stems back from the Inca time where we used to literally um, kind of regard the sun or the clouds or the water as gods. And so that has translated into many different ways as to how to approach nature, whether it's, you know, these different forms of life being considered spirits or having a spirit. Like, for example, in the Amazon, um, the Amazonian cosmos vision, which is kind of like the way they see the world, believes that every natural form, whether it's an animal, the soil, the trees, the air, they're all going to have a spirit that embodies them. And we, uh, and because of that, we need to treat it with respect for anything we do, whether it's to go catch fish or being able to plant a tree. And so I think bringing that into any type of exploration, whether it's purely scientific or conservation-driven, or even education and storytelling needs to play an important role. And I think different, you know, storytelling projects um, have done 
um, uh, an interesting and, and, and great job at trying to approach that. But I think there's still room to go farther. And I think that's where local voices come in. And as an indigenous Peruvian person, uh, and that also happens to have a scientific background, I've taken it quite seriously that as my work has evolved uh, into the Bowling River or other topics like Amazonian stingless bees that we can get to in a second, um, how can we pair that with storytelling in a way that we elevate voices of people that are there, that are living the daily reality of the Amazon or the Andes, but in a way that tells, you know, uh, the other side, basically, of the story, not just saying, oh, this place can be dangerous and you can be killed by anacondas and jaguars at any given moment if you don't pay attention, you know, but um, all the other beautiful aspects that is important to be able to not just fall in love more with our nature, but really to be able to understand the the life and the feelings and and the whole internal process that the guardians of our forest, which is the local people, go through every day. No, that, I mean, that sounds really important. I was just wondering, I will ask you about the stingless bees in a minute, but I, it just occurred to me, I was wondering sort of what um, reaction you've had from uh, other members, I guess, of your university or scientific community as you're trying to do this, because you were telling me that you've been based in the US for almost 12 years. The US famously does not have a great record of respecting the stories and traditions of some other countries that it goes to. So I wondered sort of how, um, yeah, uh, maybe uh, scientists from the global north have sort of responded if this has come up. That's an interesting question. I think when it's, you know, I, I was in the scientific community and I think because we were conducting what I consider high impact and, and really well-rounded science that was bringing in different collaborators from different fields, universities, backgrounds, we were presenting the information first through the scientific lens and like the impact and the potential for discovery um, and, and really benefits, whether it's at the basic science level or the translatable aspect, um, I think by first introducing that and then adding the cultural component, you know, we happen to be able to connect with people or communities that perhaps wouldn't have been as receptive at first. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that um, everybody just necessarily took it like that, as you say. Um, and so I think it just really depends on adapting the story. And I think because we've been collaborator with insanely talented artists in this whole process, we've been able to adapt how we tell the story so that we can overcome any barrier in that, you know, process of uh, not just in the language, but like as to should, why should I care about this or why, why, like this sounds like a joke or is this for real? Does this even matter? Or the question that I get the most is what does it mean to my life? Like, how does that impact me? Why should I care? Because we see the Amazon as such a remote location that in quote-unquote may not have a direct impact in our daily lives or we see things um, within the scientific realm whether it's microbes or whatever other thing as such a separated thing from us but I think in the time of COVID which is when we dive more like deeper into all of these projects the world changed so much in a way that everybody all of a sudden had to be talking about science and or nature and even the impact that climate is having into bringing us closer, unfortunately, 
to, you know, things that may not be so healthy to us, whether that's like dangerous microbes or, or other things. And so I think we came lucky at, to be bringing these topics at a time where it became of relevance to the world. But I, I would say that on the storytelling aspect is what we've had a bit more of um, friction in a way, not, not friction, I, more like a resistance. I think that's a better way to put it. Um, and from multiple angles, on one, me coming as a female explorer uh, and then having a different face to represent these stories and like the traditional, you know, film, movie, set, um, at least in, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere um, that are exploring the Amazon jungle. You typically just have the same kind of storyline dressed in different ways that have been shown. Um, and so I think trying to convey the idea that, hey, I do happen to be proven. Yes, I look the way that I look. Um, um, but I do also come from a strong scientific background. So I feel confident to talk about these different type of topics while considering myself a girly girl. So not perhaps <laughs> having the necessary looks that people have associated, you know, whether it's with like the rough type that goes and treks in the jungle or like the nerdy type of person that stays in the laboratory. Um, I think coming from this kind of more girly uh, angle, I used to be a dancer, so I love all girly stuff fashion, wow. clothing, makeup. Um, I think I struggle with uh, with that for the storytelling aspect because I understand how stories need to be sold, but that's something that I think will be really interesting to play with and to try to break molds um, uh, in the future. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's why it's just important to be collaborating with local people so that we can provide authenticity. I think ultimately providing authenticity can really... Uh, reach people in, in different ways, even if there's some resistance at first. Yeah, amazing. Because yes, you're a science communicator now. So I mean, well, that's one of your roles. So one of your roles is to try and tell these stories and get them across. Um, and yeah, uh, how, I suppose, how have you, like, what's the things you've learned about science communication? And I, as you say, how to make it feel more relevant for people because we talk about the climate crisis or flooding or the Amazon but if you've never been there and a lot of people um, living in the UK you know will have never been to those places how do we how do you kind of make that feel more personal and make people care about it yeah it's a beautiful question actually my, my husband came to, uh, with me for the first time to the Amazon earlier this year and we were joking that he may be the first person from West Bromwich <laughs> that came <laughs> we don't know we would like to find out. So if anybody's listening that has, please let us know. Um, because, he, you know, he's British um, from birth. Um, but I would say um, the storytelling aspect has just been so, uh, such an interesting journey. I think, and I will go back to the COVID time because I think that's what made it more apparent to me, at least. I used to think, um, mistakenly, that if I took time to dedicate to like science communication or to the general public, I felt like it was taking time away from what was what mattered to me at the time, quote unquote. Whether it's like, oh no, I need to finish this experiment in the lab, or no, I need to be talking with these communities because we're progressing on this conservation project in Peru or whatnot. And so I felt so deprived of time, and I think everybody felt like that before COVID. We were just kind of rolling, um, but everything stopped, and in that process. 
and I, I think, you know, I would be interested in, in, in knowing what you think. There was such a massive amount of miscommunication happening around us. Everybody was getting freaked out. I was getting freaked out. My family was getting freaked out. We would listen, you know, left to right, all these type of things about the science behind COVID or what should we be doing or what should we not be doing or this may kill you or this may not kill you. There were so many voices that came out all at once with the, you know, being so easy to, to share stories throughout the internet, whether they have validity, authenticity, and, you know, actually well-sounded science behind it or not. That almost kind of didn't matter at first. And to me, that was really shocking and scary because everybody was talking about the one topic and all of a sudden it was so easy to spread misinformation. Um, and then I think after that, there's been a, a shift in the industry to promote more voices of science communicators. But in that process, I think it's, you know, it's also become a bit more, um, how do I say, to call oneself a, a science communicator without necessarily having had the background or the training to be able to, you know, dive deep into some scientific topics that may require like more specific special like specialization um, that is important so that we don't you know translate information into things that can be harmful to people because whenever it comes in with a scientific background or calling you know saying we are a scientific communicator people will listen especially after the covid time and so i think it's something to hold with high regard and importance um, and with so much respect. And so I think something that we've been, we are really pushing to bringing different type of faces and voices into the storytelling aspect that bring the, for example, scientific authenticity on one end, but that also bring the local platform. So by I've been traveling to the Amazon jungle since I was a child. I did it because of family to visit cousins and etc. And then eventually I decided to make it part of, of my job, really, my role. And so I took the commitment since I was 15 to just go every year and be able to connect with scientists, communities, uh, leaders. And I've been doing that ever since. And then in the last few years have turned into quite, you know, literally my point of research and investigations, uh, as well as conservation efforts. And so I organized expeditions to take different types of groups of people whether scientists, artists, into different parts of the jungle. And I think on the artist aspect is something that I've been really trying to emphasize so that the science communication has a new uh, way of presenting itself. Do we do it in a way that we really touch emotions with people and we make it relevant to others? I think ultimately what connects more is when you feel that you can be there along with everybody, but also when we see what the real impact of our daily choices in wherever you are in the world can have in the Amazon or the things that you may be using in your daily life that have derived somehow from the Amazon, like a lot of the chocolate that we eat. So if you like chocolate, you should be caring about <laughs> the first station in the Amazon, you know, uh, or if we like certain type of perfumes or makeup or even medicines that we literally use in our daily repertoire in pharmacies, in, in, in hospitals, a lot of those derive from 
the Amazon. Another example I'll give you is Captopril. It's a, such a widely used medicine to lower heart, um, like high blood pressure. And it was inspired on the venom from a snake in the Brazilian Amazon back in the days. So there's so many examples as such. And I think, you know, that comes from the scientific background and from that knowledge from community and Amazonian leaders uh, that combine and, and like that come together so that we can make people care. And we try to combine all of that with high quality images, high quality videos that really take everyone that looks at our stories into the journey with us. They feel as if they are doing it with us and they feel responsible for it. And all of a sudden in that process, now you care a little bit more about the story. And then if you hear, you know, anything, any other story on the Amazon jungle, you'll be a bit more keen to listen or a bit more keen to share. And that's really how we propel change and, and how we, you know, inspire people to take action um, at any level, whether it's at the individual level, community level, or even at the decision-making governmental or organizational level. Um, and so I, by seeing the impact that our storytelling has had, uh, were, really made me shift how I approach science communication and made me develop such a strong commitment to do it in an authentic way where I also highlight, you know, local voices, including myself. Um, especially I, I feel even more eager on that aspect of trying to break that boundary as to like, yes, you can be as girly or no girly as you want. And yes, you can have a scientific background. And yes, you can still be the face that is leading, uh, you know, adventurous exploration, scientific journey in TV in the Amazon. Amazing. And I promised, yes, I, so please, now can you tell us about the stingless bees? Because I know I, I kept getting distracted, but I do want to hear about them. So tell us all about the bees. Yeah, absolutely. So have you ever heard about stingless bees in the world? I'm not sure I have, no. Yeah, and I do not blame you because most people haven't. I actually, I've been trying to count uh, and I think, you know, two in three like people that I talk to have never heard of stingless bees. Uh, my family hadn't uh, for a long time. Uh, and, and basically, so stingless bees... Be, are bees that literally cannot, cannot sting you. And that's a common question that I get. Is it true that they cannot sting you? They proper cannot sting you, I promise you. I've put <laughs> them in my face. They cannot. Uh, and they are originary to different tropics around the world. I'll get to that in a second because it's a crazy story. Um, they're originary to different tropics around the world. So they are, they're found in the jungles of Africa, uh, Central America, as well as the Amazon forests. And so there are documented there are about 500 species of stingless bees worldwide and what's most fascinating is that they all look so different i've seen some with my own eyes that can look as tiny as ants like if you don't know their bees you i promise you you won't know their bees i didn't unless i ha i was with someone that had a specialty in how to identify stingless bees that look like that literally tiny and black colors or some can be as big as bumblebees can they can may look similar to similar colors to the stinging honeybee that we're used to, you know, the yellow, white and black stripes, sorry. Um, and some may just look maybe in green colors or have, you know, wings that have like shades of purple. All this variety um, really of, of artistic palette, I would almost say, of biodiversity. Um, and about half of those species are found in the Amazon rainforests. We've documented so far about 
almost 200 being found just in the northern part of the Peruvian Amazon alone. There's so much more to discover uh, because a lot of this biodiversity hasn't been assessed in other areas of the Amazon jungle. Um, so I'll be excited to see what, what comes from there. But Amazonian communities have known about stingless bees and known how to use them in many ways ever before the Spanish came to San conquer South America. So for a very long time, we have found really records of oral communication and, and others that they knew how to make the best use of these bees. They knew how to find them in the wild, which is a whole different story because they do this at night, which is kind of mind-blowing to me. They knew how to extract them from nature. They typically have their beehives inside hollow trees. So all of a sudden you find yourself finding something that you cannot see. You need to go by sound, um, which is just insanely talented, in my opinion. Um, they knew how to strike that. They knew how to distinguish the different type of honeys, and they do that to this date, knowing that certain species produce the most medicinal honey and knowing that some other species produce toxic, venomous, or poisonous honey, and so they stay away from those. They also have developed different ways in which they use this medicinal honey to treat up to 14 different conditions, at least that to what... Um, We've reported in partnership with our local scientist collaborators, the Institute of Investigation of the Peruvian Amazon, um, and the scientist Cesar Delgado in Peru. Um, and more recently, too, they were using the medicinal honey of stingless bees to treat COVID in collaboration with other medicinal plants that were there. But it was a big part of their treatment, especially because a lot of these communities could not have access to the vaccine or any medicine as the world shut down. I think something that, you know, most people did not thought about because everybody was, just, you know, really trying to survive, myself included, was that as the world shut down, most of us still had access to the basic necessities. And, you know, we also had access to internet. So we stayed connected with kind of what was happening around there. Now, a lot of the Amazon communities rely on tourism uh, and on you need water transportation to be able to go from communities that are deep into the jungle to even go to the nearest city to to uh, to buy groceries or that you can all you know grow yourself in your backyard and so everything shut down so all these communities were isolated the country of Peru tried to give economic relief um, and they did so but they were deposited in bank accounts without acknowledging that most Amazonian communities do not have bank accounts. So what happened, right? So there was this major reconnection with nature. A lot of Amazonian youth, uh, at least in some areas, we had seen some rejection to their culture and trying to be a bit more Western and not really taking on the the teachings from their elderly on medicinal plants, et cetera. But at that time really kind of made everybody rethink and reconnect at, at a, such a deep level. And stingless bee honey and beekeeping was a big part of that. Um, Amazonian communities regard stingless bees as their family members, and I really mean that. It becomes a, such a family activity because the kids cannot really get injured. And so they can raise these bees in their backyards they know they can collect the honey that they use for medicine or for food and as a nutritional component as well, but they know that it helps increase the agricultural crops of their plants or, you know, their, their food around them. Um, and they really treat them as, be, uh, as friends. They're the, one of the community leaders we work with, 
said something that really stuck with me, which is, oh, I'm going to go see my bees. They know when I'm coming. They know who I am. And we thought he was just, you know, joking or, or being sweet about it. But something interesting happened, which is that there was this one beehive that happened to be quite aggressive that morning. And when they are aggressive, because they cannot sting, they have developed other techniques and some of them bite. The bite can be as tiny as like a tingle. And I've had that happen in my arm. So you cannot really feel it. And some others can be a bit more aggressive and can bite harder. You can feel it or they can stick to your hair. And the bigger they are, if they stick like that and you don't know how to remove them properly, you could remove a little bit of skin, you know? And so it, it can be, you can still need to be cautious about it. But they, in this particular beehive were quite aggressive that morning for whatever reason. And they would not slow down. They just kept in high activity. Some of us try to come close to take photos or collect honey. And they were just a little bit all over the place. And like what I had seen before for that specific species, which tends to be a bit more calm and mild in their behavior. And that's when the community leader said, oh no, they will know that I'm coming. Just give me a minute. And he removed anything, you know, hats or anything that he had in his head, just put some cotton in his ears so that they wouldn't come into the ears and literally just put his face on top of the beehive and let all the bees to come around him, literally his hair, his face, every, his neck everywhere. And then shortly after, they did start to calm down. Oh, <laughs> and I wow. thought this was... Like, I thought I was watching a movie. But then when you look at the science behind it, I know, it's kind of insane. And I, I think we should make a movie about it. But um, when, you, when you look at the science behind it, you, and if you understand the chemical communication that happens within nature, it makes a, kind of some sense that the bees can recognize his pheromones, the chemical compounds that are found in his sweat and that may be released from his own body and skin because of that constant... Um, closeness and communication that he's had with the bees in his farm, they could learn to recognize it. So there's so much more to explore and to learn in that aspect of that human nature relationship that I think there's just so many avenues to, to tell stories on. In, in Goodness. Wow. Yeah. That, so the bees, they don't sting. They might bite you. But if you are with their favorite human, then they will probably calm down. That's amazing. <laughs> Um, that's quite a summer I love that yes <laughs> <laughs> amazing um I think I mean we're almost out of time but I just wanted to hi I mean what's what's ne what's up for your plans next so you've moved to Somerset which is not nearly as exciting and exotic as the Amazon rainforest exciting in a different way I'm sure um but yeah what are sort of your plans next and how can people get in touch with you if they want to um you know get you along to a science communication event they might be holding Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm loving the Somerset area. I have to say our <laughs> neighbors are sheep and Aww. goats, and that's fascinating to me. Uh, we do still travel so much for work, and, and we are organizing expeditions in the Amazon almost twice a year. So we're super connected to Peru, and my family's there. Uh, but I'm really excited to be here and really continue on one end the conservation work that we've been doing for the past few years. So looking for more partners that want to really help us in 
taking moving the needle in conservation strategy in the Amazon rainforest. So we are working with the ministries and the Congress and different leaders in Peru so that we can advocate for law modifications as well as new uh, conservation resolutions that really change the way um, we approach conservation in the country. So, you know, we'll welcome anybody that wants to take on this journey. But then on the other side, uh, I'm also really excited to dive deeper in science communication. I've done different projects with National Geographic in Spanish, in English, whether it's to look at the sustainability in natural cosmetics or exploration in deep waters in Great Lakes um, using a jet ski or um, just different ways to, to communicate interesting stories. But I'm excited to do that with more stories from the Amazon jungle as well as other places that my work has taken me to explore, like Yellowstone or China. Uh, and so I'm, I'm excited to, to collaborate in different projects, whether that's for short films or TV. And I love educational events. So if there's anything to join out there, I'm super eager to connect with the community here in the UK. Um, and I'm always down to chat about Amazon sustainability exploration STEM diversity and anything in and around there. Um, so yeah, I'm just excited to connect. And so uh, you can find me on my website. It's www.rosa.vasquezespinoza.com. And so I'll send you the link as well. And you can find my email there and get in touch with me really quickly. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just eager to, to see what comes next. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. And yeah, I'm sure, um, yeah, hopefully there'll be people listening who it will be inspire them to also go and find out more about all these amazing uh, creatures that we've got. And yeah, best of luck um, for the future, Dr. Rosa. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. And it's been such a pleasure to talk with you and hope to meet you soon in the Bristol area or in Bath. Yeah, we are almost at the end of the show. Just time for a couple announcements and a quick culture corner. So if you, if a lot of that resonated with you, if you're also concerned about the Amazon rainforest, um, there is actually a, uh, a sort of a protest, a solidarity action happening today in Bristol at 5pm to um, protest against some of the legislation that is being put through in Brazil, not by Lula, but by, um, I think, members of the Congress who are sort of uh, disempowering some of the areas of the government that will that are working to protect the rainforest. So if you are concerned about that, um, please uh, go along. It's at 5pm at the Cascade Steps. That's today. There will be... Uh, uh, yeah, people dressed up as um, po the politicians who've been putting this through. There will be banners and yeah, a protest. So this is a solidarity action, a protest against some of the legislation going through that is threatening the rainforest at the moment. So please do look at that. Um, and wanted to finish with a little poem. Uh, this is called, um, this is by Laura Gilpin. It's a verse from a poem called Life and Death. And I just thought it was a nice way to end. The things I know. How the living go on living, and how the dead go on living with them. So that in a forest, even a dead tree casts a shadow, and the leaves fall one by one, and the branches break in the wind, and the bark peels off slowly, and the trunk cracks, and the rain seeps in through the cracks, and the trunk falls to the ground, and the moss covers it. And in the spring the rabbits find it, and build their nest inside, and have their young, and their young will live safely, inside the dead tree so that nothing is wasted in nature or in love 
So that is a poem by Laura Gilpin. And so I believe that brings us to the end of our show. Thank you so much to Dr. Rosa for that interview. It was very interesting. Thank you for listening. Without you, there is no show. Please do join us next week when we are going to be talking to Katie Club from Future Leap all about the Festival of Sustainable Business that is happening here in Bristol for free on Thursday the 15th of June. We'll be finding out all about that and how you can attend. Next up on BCFM is Lunchtime with Tristan B. So keep it locked to BCFM for more tunes and chat. But that is all from me, Shona Jeffrey, for now. So please take care. Have a good day. Look after yourselves. Look after the planet and look after each other. This is the podcast version of One Love, One Planet, the award-winning environmental radio show broadcast every Tuesday at 11am on BCFM Radio, available on 93.2 FM, on digital radio and on the BCFM website. The show was produced and presented by Shona Jemfrey. You can find us on Twitter at Shona Jemfrey and at BCFM Radio.